0: Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED.
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Public officials, businesses, law enforcement are making plans to deal with potential election-related unrest as the president attacks mail-in ballots and has refused to commit to a peaceful transfer of power. Surveys find an American electorate that's fractured and inflamed. On the president, for example, 87 percent of Republicans approve of Trump's handling of the job. Compared with just 6% of Democrats, according to Pew, 85% of Democrats say the coronavirus is a major public health threat, while only 46% of Republicans feel the same way. And three quarters of Democrats say the way people of color are treated in the criminal justice system is a very big problem compared with 20% of Republicans. Is there historical precedent for such a deeply divided electorate? We look at moments when the nation felt this polarized and how we moved forward. We're joined by Julia Azari, Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University. She's also a regular contributor to 538. Julia Azari, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Also with us is Julian Zelizer, professor of history and public affairs at Princeton and a CNN political analyst. His recent books include Fault Lines, a history of the United States since 1974, and Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, the fall of a speaker, and the rise of the new Republican Party. Julian Zelizer, thanks so much for joining us as well.
3: Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me.
1: And I'll start with you, if I could, Julian Zelizer. How would you characterize the nature of political division in the U.S. at this moment? I mean, are we in uncharted territory here?
3: Well, we've had other polarized moments in American history. We've had other moments uh, in the 19th century, for example, where the parties were uh, incredibly far apart and the character of political battles uh, became intense. But just because we've had moments like that doesn't mean this isn't pretty bad. Uh, We are in a moment where uh, polarization I think dominates um, you know, most decisions and most deliberations that go uh, go on, I think the Republican Party has moved in a much uh, kind of more extreme direction uh, during this period. And, and added to that, we now have a president who has spent four years playing into those divisions. So we didn't even have the counterbalancing president who seeks to at least try to find some kind of center. Mm. Uh, and so that's where we are today. And And that's why it's been bad before, but doesn't make this better.
1: Uh, Julia Azara, you've written about how, yes, certainly we've been this divided before, but that it hasn't fallen so starkly along party lines. Can you talk about what you mean by that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I was responding to, and I've written about this um, at 5:38 and some other venues, is the kind of notion that what's what's gone off about American politics and about polarization is that we've now moved into this this area where there's this emphasis on identity politics, and so there were there were a lot of kind of takes in the early years of the the Trump administration from people who leaned left, but sort of argued if we just would de-emphasize identity, if we weren't talking about race, if we weren't talking about gender and sexuality and you know, trans people and trans rights, then, then, then we could move into these other kinds of issues that matter. And my argument was that these, these issues have come to the fore in a way that's distinct in the 21st century and have come to divide the two parties really clearly and to be kind of issues on the national political agenda But that doesn't mean that the country was unified, particularly on race in the past. And in fact, that that we've always had these really deep divisions over how, you know, how we live together as a diverse country. Um, And those divisions have tended to play out within parties, or they haven't, or they haven't played out at all, right? The reason that we weren't we weren't divided over, over rights for, for trans people and LGBT people at other points in history is because no one was, was t- talking about those individuals and their rights. So I think that a lot of how contemporary discourse frames polarization Ignores some of these these power dynamics, and also ignores the fact that these divisions were just as deep, and and the policies they represented just as damaging for many people's lives. It's just that we didn't see them sort of clash out loud in the midst of um, of something like a national presidential campaign. They, they took these debates were taking place in other types of of venues.
1: So you're saying that those conflicts were, for example. Democrats disagreeing with other Democrats, but then when they came out, say, with a unified party platform, potentially, right, it didn't address some of those harder issues?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've done a lot of work looking at, um, in a, a current book project, looking at the fights within the Democratic Party in the 1950s, so kind of leading up to what people think of as the civil rights era when you had really, you know, vocal contingents within that party, both that that wanted to move forward on civil rights um, and, you know, specifically on kind of federal protection for African-Americans. And and on the other hand, you had this sort of Southern segregationist wing of the party and the people who supported them who said things now that I think would, you know, not be, you would not hear at a democratic convention. You would not hear in a lot of um, what we would consider polite society. Yes.
1: Um, And so how would you then characterize how Republicans are addressing race and immigration and how Democrats are doing that? Because it sounds like what you're saying basically is that now that it has come to the fore, that it's a big part of the conversation that's happening between parties. Like, how would you define those differences? Julia Zari?
2: Yeah, sure. So... I think, I mean, this can be um, pretty, you know, pretty touchy to, to talk about. Um, but I think the data speaks for itself in some ways that the Republican Party has become a really white party, um, and the Democratic Party has absorbed much of the growing racial and ethnic diversity of this country, and that also and also age diversity. Um, I think that, you know, I think you would get different answers if you ask different Republicans to characterize the party's position. But I think that it's also very hard to ignore the connections between that party and kind of backli- backlash against Black Lives Matter and movements like that. And also this sort of contingent within that party of, of very conservative and very nationalist views on immigration. I, I just don't know how to how to get around that. I think Democrats also, again, are somewhat varied in their um, in their views, but generally have approached, um, have been, have been eager you know, very recently to embrace the Black Lives Matter movement, not necessarily everything that it stands for, but some of its, um, some, of it, some of its political power, frankly, um, have been more in favor of federal involvement to protect civil rights Um, And that, you know, you do see the two parties being pretty distinct on this.
1: Julian Zelizer, would you agree that this is sort of the way the parties are sorting themselves and that it's playing out and adding to this whole environment of of divisiveness?
3: Yeah, and I think that sorting has taken place over decades. Uh, I think the Democrats have moved in the direction that Julie is talking about, really starting in the 1940s. There's a famous moment when Hubert Humphrey, who's running for the Senate, gets up at the Democratic Convention and and tells his party they have to embrace civil rights and not follow the ideas of states' rights anymore, which leads to a walkout of some Southerners. And then through the 1960s and the decades that follow, the Democrats moved uh, toward uh, a pretty unified civil rights agenda. Southern Democrats moved to the Republican Party and on the other side, Republicans, a large number of them, have played to racial backlash politics. Uh, there's many moments that historians look at, whether it's Richard Nixon's Law and Order campaign or Lee Atwater's 1988 uh, campaigns, uh, ads and uh, George H.W. Bush's speeches about uh, Willie Horton. Uh, right through President Trump, who just does it without any kind of coded language and and says the silent part out loud, as people say. uh, I think backlash politics has been part of the Republican Party and it's intensified. And that's why you have some Republicans now who are in soul searching mode, writing about this and saying it's been there all along. And, And I think you have a very different position from the parties on issues of pluralism, racial justice, and and it's pretty stark in 2020.
1: Huh. So these issues, I mean, you're talking about race, gender, sexual norms, as Julia Azari was pointing out, economic equality. I mean, you were saying uh, in Fault Lines that that they've always existed, but that they were held in check for a long time. What held them in check?
3: Yeah, well, uh, I think in terms of partisan polarization, there were things that worked against that, and certainly in the mid-20th century. So the parties were internally divided. Democrats were not united. They were divided between liberal Northerners and Southern Democrats. Republicans were divided between Midwestern conservatives and liberal Northeasterners. And so uh, the parties were structurally in a place where they forced bipartisan negotiations and discussions, even though these tensions over race were just as severe uh, as, as they are today, in some ways even more severe, yes. you had different kinds of media institutions. I mean, right now we are in an atmosphere where you have very powerful partisan media outlets that promote the news in an explicitly partisan way. Uh, Fox News is, is the most striking example. And back in the 50s and 60s, you still had a very different form of news journalism that tried to adhere to objectivity where there were fewer channels that were just devoted to, to news all the time from, from a political perspective and, and so on and so on. And so there were things pushing against these divisive inclinations uh, in the political system.
1: But that doesn't necessarily mean we've made progress, right? Julia, I mean, the very fact of what we've seen just this past year, especially with uh, what happened with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, the protests, the injustice really being exposed much more broadly for a much bigger swath of Americans, has shown that we didn't necessarily make progress even if they were quote unquote in check.
2: I think, I mean, I think progress is sort of a tricky narrative. Things are always changing on multiple different kinds of of dimensions. And I think that you see, you know, I think it would be hard to say to look at some of the, the things that I've looked at from the 1950s and say that this isn't a time where there are in many ways more opportunities for a wider variety of Americans. Um, I think you also see that playing out in in the composition of Congress and composition of state legislatures and state governments, that we have a more diverse array of Americans than that ever have access to power. And yet, at the same time, we do see this sort of resistance to movements that want to hold law enforcement officials accountable. You do see enormous inequities in the criminal justice system and in in economic, you know, economic power and, and state of status of, of different groups within the country. So I think it's hard to, I think it's really hard to say what, you know, whether we've definitively made progress, but again, I kind of tend to view the, the way in which polarization has unfolded as a result of not inevitable, but a sort of predictable result. Of the full democratization of the country, that as different groups of people have been have gained access to power, you have seen a response to that that we're now seeing is, you know, is more open to, to talking about you know ways of ways of running the country that are not respectful of democratic norms and democratic values, um, and you're seeing these kinds of deep divisions that start to permeate all different issue positions. Um, I think those are, those are totally predictable responses to the full opening up of a, a multi-ethnic, you know, multi-gender democracy. I guess
1: what I'm also asking is, is have we made progress in terms of reckoning with our racist history and how that plays into what we're seeing today? Julia, that, I mean,
2: yeah. yeah i'm it's a little out of my direct area of, of expertise but i think that we're at the beginning of that also um and i do think that one of the problems that we've inherited is that we have these moments of kind of transformation of the the political order that governs race and the, that governs particularly the relationship between white and black americans and you, know, you have this after the Civil War and you have this after the the civil rights period in the nineteen sixties, where you get major legal changes that that empower the federal government in these areas. And then you get you get some backlash, but you don't really what you don't really get is, is serious reckoning, right? What you don't really get is a serious confrontation of the forces that led to those policies in the first place. And that I think we I think we are inheriting that. Mm. Um, And I think we are seeing the ways in which in the era, you know, I remember being in grade school in the 1980s and we kind of learned that race didn't matter and we were all going to be colorblind and I think that that those norms and ideas are well intentioned, but have have kind of manifested in a very stilted conversation about race and about about reconciliation. And we might be at the beginning of having a new kind of conversation, um, but I think it's hard to know exactly what that will look like.
1: Julian Zelzer, we've talked about this history, uh, we've talked about sort of internal party politics, and you've talked about how media decentralization has made division worse. You've also alluded, Julian Zelzer, just at the top, to the fact that we have a unique president. (laughs) How much of it is Trump himself?
3: Yeah, I, I, so I'm of both minds with understanding President Trump. The thrust of a lot of what I've written and the way I understand this presidency is to see it as a culmination of uh, of changes that have taken place within the Republican Party since the 1980s, uh, from the kind of partisanship that he practices, a, a no guardrails kind of partisanship, to being part of a coalition that embraces and includes pretty extremist elements. I, I don't think it's all President Trump. And and I, I wrote a book about Newt Gingrich to show the origins of this. But uh, that said, there's still things that are distinct about him beyond his personality. I, I do think he's a president who understood the direction of his party and understood some of the dysfunction of American politics more broadly and took a deep dive into it. He didn't mind it. In fact, he tried to capitalize on it. He's a president who instinctively saw some of the divisions we're talking about. And rather than any effort uh, to try to overcome those, his strategy is to just focus on those who support him uh, and and accelerate uh, and aggravate the divisions rather than work against them and then even in terms of his use of power he did not invent strong presidential power he is not the only one to abuse presidential power but the way he does it so openly and without any kind of sense of remorse or needing to hide it that's different uh, so he brings out a lot of the political system and just by doing that I think it's certainly made the situation worse. And we've seen it right now as we speak with the way he's treating the election and and openly uh, going against basic processes that we have to decide who's president of the United States.
1: We're talking with Julian Zelzer, a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University and a CNN political analyst. His recent book includes Fault Lines, a history of the United States since 1974. Also, Julia Azari is with us, associate professor of political science at Marquette University. She's also a regular contributor to Five Thirty Eight. And your listeners are with us as we prepare to elect either a new president or to give the incumbent another four years. At a time when the parties feel completely ideologically opposed, we're looking at past instances of U.S. electoral and political strife to help understand and address today's disunity. What are your thoughts? I mean, do you recall a time, maybe during the Vietnam War or civil rights era, or maybe during Bush v. Gore even, that feels comparable to this moment? Or do you feel like we're in uncharted terrain? What are your thoughts about how history can be a guide in this hyperpartisan moment and what you think is contributing to the division that we're seeing today? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. 866-733-6786. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Nina Kim. Stay with us.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
1: You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about how history can guide us in this moment of political and electoral divisiveness with Julia Azari of Marquette University and Julian Zelizer of Princeton University. Julia Azari is a political science professor and Julian Zelizer a professor of history and public affairs. You, our listeners, are with us. Again, 866-733-6786 is the number to call. 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And Julia Azari, just before the break, I Talking with Julian Zel- Zelzer about the role of President Trump. I mean, what are your thoughts on the role this president is playing in the kind of divisiveness that we that we see? And is there even a precedent for a president like Trump?
2: I think not. You know, not entirely. Um, let me uh, let me unpack a couple things that I think are are really relevant here. And the first one really to riff on something that Julian was saying about um, about Trump not really trying to grow his his base. You know, we've seen a kind of shift in the relationship between presidents and partisan politics in, I would say, essentially the, the run-up to the 21st century where presidents have become increasingly, because of these kinds of, of party dynamics that we've been talking about, increasingly dependent on their own parties and increasingly, I think, kind of symbolic you know publicly symbolic of their party's values um and i think that we did see a situation in which george w bush in his first term i think did and in the 2004 campaign tried to kind of reach out beyond his his base to grow a a majority which he did i think obama faced a lot of challenges in that regard and, and didn't grow his um his winning coalition and one of very few presidents to lose vote share and still win re-election, um, and that with Trump we've seen that sort of go in like one step further, which is that he hasn't tried to grow his his support base, and he doesn't have a majority, and he's kind of never commanded a majority in in elector like in public opinion or in the 2016 election. So what we've actually seen is that the the transition of American politics from like very competitive partisan environment to a minoritarian partisan environment in which you've seen the consolidation of power by an administration and a a political party that have not recently won majorities of public support. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really distinct about about the Trump administration. Um, I also think, though, that that the presidency itself is kind of lends itself to this norm breaking. And and one of the things I said early on in Trump's presidency is that often these presidents who break with a sort of accepted forms of how presidents should <laughs> behave and push their power to the boundaries. Those are the ones who remember as the greats. And you know, I wrote this piece at five thirty eight, which I think. Honestly, my father is still mad at me about um, about uh, about FDR and all of his kind of really strong uh, uses of the presidency, including the unprecedented norm breaking um, of running for a fourth term. And so I, I kind of thought about that when Trump was first in office, that these norm breakers often are the ones people think of as really strong and they get a lot done. Um, But Trump does not, again, doesn't really wield a national majority and also as someone coming in from outside of politics, I think doesn't really have some of those Washington skills. Um, And so he hasn't really done that. And then circumstances, I think, have changed that. But I do think that as far as as kind of expansively using the office of the presidency, um, Trump doesn't really stand out very much at all.
1: Well, Lady Tweets, America is still divided today because of racism and religion, as we always have been through history. The U.S. president either works as a tool for their political party's devices or they break through, becoming a guiding light, unifying the majority of Americans. Julian Zelizer, the role of racism or religion even. And I I guess it also raises the question of, you know, how much of this can be potentially fixed, for lack of a better word, you know, either with a different president or with a different, um, adoption <laughs> by the current president, a behavior shift by the current president.
3: I think on the first point, uh, obviously those are two central, uh, points of division in the modern era, uh, fundamental divisions over how and what role the government should play in dealing with racial inequality and religion increasingly has been a point of division, uh, Certainly since the 1970s, when you had the mobilization of the religious right and its um, alignment with the modern Republican Party, that turned a lot of religious issues uh, into a point of political contention. But there are other issues. I would say we, we shouldn't only think of those. I think there's pretty um, severe divisions right now over questions of climate change, uh, basic issues about the role of expertise in science and politics. And certainly on economic policy, it doesn't always get as much attention, but on uh, the role of the federal tax system, on regulation, I think the the parties are in pretty different places at this point um, over how to deal with the issue as, as voters are, not just elected officials. So I think it's actually much worse, even, uh, given the broad array of questions we don't have agreement on. President can't solve all this. It's not as if uh, if we had a President Biden in January 2021, he's somehow gonna step in and solve the problem of institutional racism uh, that we've been wrestling with uh, for for decades and decades. But that doesn't mean you can't make incremental progress. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 65 did not solve racial inequality in this country, but it was a huge step forward in ending legal segregation in having the government protect voting rights. And I think that's how we have to think of uh, these kinds of questions, particularly in this era where governing has become so difficult. We're looking for small changes and a president does play an important role.
1: Well, let me go to caller Tony in Santa Barbara. Hi, Tony.
4: Hi, how are you today? Thanks for taking the call.
1: Sure, go right I ahead. I have
4: a quick question, and I'd like to ask it. It's kind of more than one question, maybe. But the first is, is there not a very big similarity in this GOP and all of these senators that are relinquishing their power to the president, not following through on a just and thorough investigation for impeachment and making it look like fascism? And if it is fascism, why isn't anyone saying so? And lastly, if it is fascism, why is it that anti-fascism is a bad thing? Didn't we fight Germany against fascism? One more comment before I go, and you can answer this on the air, is why is it that all of your speakers have not addressed the fact that the true power always seems to go back to money and the rich and the bankers and the oil companies and even that Nixon made the dollar attached to oil, our dollar is no longer a dollar. it's a federal reserve note. Go ahead, see I- what you can do with that.
1: <laughs> Tony, thanks for sharing your opinion. Julia Azzar, do you want to start by addressing uh, Tony's questions or points?
2: Yeah, let me start so I recently um written about impeachment, so i can I can start on that and I mean, I want to acknowledge his point that of course you know money is money is incredibly powerful. I don't know how much that's, you know, how much that's really uh, changed. Um, but I think that that does obviously shape uh, the political system. In terms of impeachment, I think it's interesting, you know, to think about the role of the, the GOP senators who were mostly loyal to Trump. What was different in 2020 compared with past impeachments, of which there are not very many, um, is, that, is that a senator voted to remove a president from his own party and that was Mitt Romney who of course has broken with Trump over a variety of issues in the past. Um, I think it's pretty you know it's been pretty normal for impeachments to be incredibly partisan um, and this one was this one was no exception. I do think that Trump has a kind of distinct hold over or influence with the Republican base that has shaped how members of Congress have responded to him um, but I also think that that power over the Republican Party is quite is quite limited, um, and that Trump's sort of dependence on his party rather than the other way around was um, was kind of influenced by the by the whole impeachment incident itself. Um, I do think, though, given that right, given the president's kind of outsized influence over the partisan base, that you do see a Congress that sees itself more than before as kind of a, the president's agents are on the same team with the president's you do see, I think, and this is really getting into Julian's area of expertise in Congress, but I, do, I think you do sort of see a decline in, um, in kind of sense of, of institutional partisanship or institutional pride um, where Congress might push back against the president simply because um, of the difference in their, in their offices. So I think we see some continuity there and, and some change.
1: Julian Zelzer, did you want to comment on how the GOP has responded to Trump and largely coalesced around him?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think we can think of partisanship as something that's always around in American politics. And we certainly would be making a mistake if we just say, oh my gosh, uh, how partisan. Uh, The thinking has become on Capitol Hill, and we've never seen this before, but what Julia is talking about is very relevant. I I mean, I think certainly in earlier periods, legislators would balance um, that very basic concern with other concerns. One concern being, are we protecting the health of our institutions, Congress, just our democratic processes? Two, are we focused on governing? And that's an obligation. And I think those have really fallen away. And what you see in Senator McConnell is a, a, a level of partisan ruthlessness uh, that's, that's pretty fierce and it overwhelms those other two concerns. And ultimately, I, I think the Republicans in Congress have been pretty comfortable with President Trump, even though they moan and groan with some of the things he says uh, or roll their eyes. Uh, Romney's really an exception at that moment. Uh, Overall, the party has been on the same page, and I I think it's not a reflection of Trump taking over the party. Uh, I I think Trump is actually understanding what he needs to survive has been pretty uh, on on point with a lot of the key issues that the, the current GOP cares about from Uh, a kind of hard line on, on immigration to tax cuts and deregulation.
1: Well, let me go to caller Amy in Fremont. Hi, Amy, join us.
4: Thank you. Thank you for taking my
2: call. And all I have to say is to echo what Tony was saying, is that, yes, we are on a deep slide to fascism. You're having these very relevant policy type discussions, but the division is deeper than that.
4: We are in the midst of Anarchy, when we have the governor of a state being plotted against by armed
2: domestic terrorists, it's that deep. Mm -hmm. Have we ever seen a schism like that before the Civil War in our country? As historians, have you seen such rancor that it's leading to anarchy that we're seeing? Buses being pulled over, not allowed to drive to their destination, And I'll take my answer off the air. And thanks for bringing it up, Tony. A lot of us feel this way.
1: Amy, thanks. And not just only having, you know, an armed entity swarm a Biden-Harris bus in Texas, but also having a president who who basically thanked them, right, for it. Uh, Julian Zelizer, I'll go to you for a quick reaction to what Amy is saying as well. Just, it feels really deep and unprecedented
3: it feels deep but it's not unprecedented and look i've uh, if if you look back at the 1960s uh and the civil rights movement one of the starting places is the kind of brutal violence that peaceful civil rights uh, protesters would encounter from white citizens in southern states with the police either standing by or actually joining in. You had governors like George Wallace, who authorized essentially the violence that was taking place until they no longer could do so. Uh, and and I think that whole period saw a level of brutality, including the assassination of Martin Luther King uh, and Robert Kennedy, that uh, is a reminder in some ways of how bad things can get. And I guess that's how I look at the history, uh, not to try to say there's nothing about what we've seen today in the past, but we could actually see just how destructive this can, this can all go. And so the a, attempt to kidnap a governor uh, is certainly horrible. And the kinds of uh, violence and intimidation that we've seen certainly in the past few months and right up through today it is, a, is a terrible development. But, but it, it actually reminds me of some of the things you study when you're looking back at a period like the civil rights era.
1: So then how do you think we'll move forward? And, and before you answer that, let me just remind listeners, we're talking with Julian Zelizer, CNN Political Analyst, Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University, and Julia Azari, Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University, also a regular contributor to Five You're listening to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. So Julian, I mean, how do we move forward? How are you well, feeling about it? Uh, so, yeah. <laughs>
3: are you optimistic? Look, I mean, look, leadership matters. And, and I'll come back to Lyndon Johnson in that one of the, the worst moments in the civil rights protest was in Selma in, in March of 65, when peaceful protesters, including the late John Lewis, were were violently attacked um, for demanding the right to vote and Johnson responded with a famous speech to Congress where he called on Congress to support voting rights, and he sent a bill to Congress, and and he used the words of the Civil Rights Movement, the the song of the Civil Rights Movement, We Shall Overcome, to finish his speech. And it was an example of how a leader can actually respond to these times and try to move us forward in, in effective ways. But in the end, it will also depend on on citizen groups. And we've seen a lot of progress from the Black Lives Matter uh, movement to the Parkland students, where you can see that there are parts of the new generation of politically active Americans who want to push us and put pressure on politicians to get us to a better place. So it's that relationship between strong leaders and new generational grassroots forces that can get us beyond where we are today. And I, I believe that's still possible.
1: Well, Julia, same question to you. I mean, what's the solution here? Or, you know, is this one of those situations where history is a guide in the sense that this is cyclical? And that, you know, if we're feeling as we are, that this has been, or at least we're hearing from our listeners, that this has been a, a very destabilizing presidency and a destabilizing time, how do we get out of it? How do we move forward?
2: Yes, yeah, good question. And I mean, I, I'm living here in you know, very competitive political territory, and I'm, I'm' hearing some very alarming things about what's going on in different parts of the state in in Wisconsin as far as some of these incidents. Um, but I actually think what I was saying earlier about about bringing back majority rule is is very relevant to these kinds of questions. I think that if we if we have a political system in which, The majority drives the agenda, not the minority, not the political minority, um, and in which everyone has some sense that they could belong to a meaningful policy majority, that they could be part of the, the policy discussion, then you'll see less of this kind of action. And that doesn't mean, I mean, we've always had fringe people. And we've also always had, as Julian was alluding to, some really unfortunate marriages between power and the use of that power in a violent way against people who want to change the system. But I also think that we would have less of a kind of tense political situation if people felt like there was a realistic possibility that they could be part of a governing majority that could gain power and accomplish its agenda and not be, you know, not be left out of that, that policy conversation. And instead we have a situation in which People see politics as a very high stakes and zero-sum game. Um, and they see the other side winning as a necessary loss for themselves. And we combine that with a situation in which one party is increasingly has a hard time winning a majority at the, at the ballot box at all. Um, and that, to me, seems like a very, a very combustible combination that, that we need to address.
1: And really quickly, we just have seconds. But a common sense of pur- purpose that could bind us, what do you think that could be? Julia Azari, equity, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I should, uh, I should let you go. Historian Julian Zelazer and political scientist Julia Azari. Thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. Susan Britton, thanks for producing this segment. I'm Mina Kim.
2: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation
0: and the Generosity Foundation.